Hi, this is Nathan Sherrill, director of David's Harp, a center for musical development. And welcome to our podcast. In the next 30 minutes, plan to learn more about the world of music and missions in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and consider how you might find ways to share the gospel through music in your own neck of the woods. Enjoy. Greetings, friends of music and missions. It's a beautiful sunny morning approaching spring in the Midwest, a wonderful morning to have a conversation with a very special guest. This morning, we have the wonderful opportunity to talk to Reverend Dr. John Veeker, Senior Assistant to the President of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Dr. Veeker, it's wonderful to have you with us today. Thank you, Nathan. Great to be here. To start things off, as we like to do so often on these, Dr. Veeker, can you just tell us a little bit more about yourself and your family? Absolutely. I grew up in Central California back in the dark ages, the 60s, and uh, on a grape vineyard uh, on a farm. And uh, But my mother was very musical, and um, some of the earliest memories I have are singing with her around the family piano that we that had been passed down for a couple generations from for her, and um, from her side of the family anyway. Some musicians on the other side of the family. I did the usual thing, started taking piano lessons when I was in fourth grade and joined band in fifth grade. And I, I, I was very interested in music uh, as a child, um, continued through high school, took classical piano through uh, through high school and majored in piano at California Lutheran uh, through college and then went to seminary. Because, you know, as a musician, you do have to uh, you have to pay the bills. So. I was uh, <laughs> I was uh, interested in theology as well as music, and um, by the end of the seminary, I stayed for an STM and uh, was interested in how music uh, and worship uh, are connected with theology. And uh, so, came from a musical family, at least on my mother's side, mostly, and um, have had a love of music and of singing and playing piano and and eventually organ as well. So you actually thought in order to pay the bills as a musician, you would become a pastor. Well, you know, I, <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of how it worked out. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> that's very encouraging to all sorts of people out there. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> there's other ways to do that, too. Uh, there, there's a, of course, one can become, and I wasn't aware of this at the time, one can become a contour, you know, a trained Lutheran church musician which was not really on the radar at California Lutheran. I think if I'd gone to River Forest or Seward or someplace like that, I would, that's, that might have been where I ended up. But I, uh, I was also very interested in being a pastor, uh, at least exploring that possibility. And uh, when finally, I, got, I didn't really you know, know for sure till I got that call in, on call day. <laughs> yep, that's where the Lord wants to send me. Great. You know, it, this should be probably a conversation for another podcast, but the the whole idea of, of a contour or a pastor, mm -hmm. a theologian, and a musician serving the church mm -hmm. in both of those capacities is certainly something that is um, very uh, important to David's harp. And uh, so yes. we'll have to schedule another one of these to <laughs> sure, sure. visit about that whole conversation. Amen. Uh, Dr. Veeker, can you share with us what you do on a daily basis now, uh, being in this position as senior assistant to the president? I basically serve as chief of staff for uh, President Harrison. I um, am kind of his uh, uh, 
right hand man, so to speak, so to speak, as uh, as organizing the, the staff. Um, we have a very kind of flat structure in our in our office. Uh, it's the president, and then several of us gathered around him, and with our, each of our areas of expertise. This doesn't have much to do with music, uh, church music, or or worship. Yeah, my previous job was my dream job when I was the assistant director for the Commission on Worship involved in the Lutheran Service Book Project. Um, this other job kind of came along, but the Lord made it very simple for me and said, this is where you're going next. Uh, so in terms of what I do day to day now, um, not so much involved in worship, but for 12 years, I was very, very intensely involved in in worship and church music uh, as one of the as one of the staff, myself and uh, Dr. Paul Grimm. Uh, to the two executive staff involved in the production of the Lutheran Service Book. Well, that was a wonderful, those years uh, uh, of your service there in the Commission of Worship were a wonderful blessing for our church body, I believe. I, I know that we have been blessed by the Lutheran Service Book you know, where I serve, and I think it's just been a, uh, a wonderful project and gift to the church. Is there anything about that uh, very involved process that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I think it was probably the most transparent process that's happened uh, in terms of hymnal projects in our, the history of our sin. And I've studied most of them uh, as much as we can find out about some of them anyway. Um, it's been 15 years, however, since that project was completed. Uh, the hymnal is now 15 years old. And, you know, a good life for a hymnal is 30 years. I'll be the last to say we need to start thinking about a new hymnal, but we do not. We do need to start thinking toward a new hymnal. Um, I think. I think if we were to begin a project in the next five to seven years, that would be that would probably be salutary. Um, on the other hand, there may be those who are like, nope, we want to stay with the hymnal um, the way it is and um, don't want to see any change. We've seen that before, haven't we? Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, so, um, <laughs> but yeah, that's kind of where we are on that. Well, your experience, especially um, uh, in music and uh, with the Commission on Worship, and now your position uh, at the synodical level, uh, has uh, caused me great interest in relation to visiting today, and especially kind of going back uh, in terms of Lutheranism and uh, thinking about music's place uh, historically uh, within the Lutheran Church, so if we could do that, kind of go way back in time, and um, mm-hmm. uh, consider the significance music played in the Lutheran Reformation, especially from the outset, could you comment or share some of your knowledge on that with our listeners? Absolutely. For Luther, as the gospel discovered him, not as he discovered the gospel, but the gospel always discovers us and enlightens us and. Uh, uh, and, and revives us. As that happened for Luther in the late, uh, you know, 1518, 1519 period, shortly thereafter, as the, as the, um, as all of the events, the nailing of the 95 theses and the here I stand speech and his, uh, all, all that stuff that happened in his life, worship began to arise, uh, questions about worship and how, how should we move on now in light of the gospel? How does the gospel form and shape um, our liturgy, and and anything else that we do, the singing of hymns, which had not been very uh, prominent in the pre-Reformation period. 
So Luther is known for saying, next to theology, I accord to music the highest place and the greatest honor. For him, it was right up there next to theology. And in fact, you can see this in his writings where um, he viewed what hymns do and what liturgy does, not as a kind of something you do because God commands it, uh, not something you do primarily to teach, but you do it because the music is a vehicle for proclaiming the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. This proclamatory function of hymnody and liturgy was critical for Luther. And you see Colossians 3.16 popping up very early, already in 1525 in some sermons that he preaches. And though that verse also ends up in hymnals as kind of the, the watchword for what a hymnal is about, a Gesangbuch. You see that in TLH. It's there right there before the hymns begin. You let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. This proclamatory function where the the word of God uh, dwells in us richly through the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So Luther himself was also a musician of of more than amateur ability and training. In those days, you were well-trained in in music. He wrote 37 hymns and a good number of the melodies that went with them. Some of them were original, but we'll get into that later. Uh, Many of them were based on existing hymn tunes that had already been used in liturgy and also in uh, pilgrimage songs. Uh, Music was important to him. He could play Uh, the lute. He wrote a motet the very last year of his life. Uh, He was not an amateur, and in other words, he knew what he was doing, along with a lot of other things that he knew how to do. Um, If you take a look at the hymns of Luther, he wrote 37 of them, as far as we can tell. Those are the ones that we have existing, and I have a list of of them in front of me. A great number of them, I think only about a handful, are in Lutheran service book. And <clears throat> when you look at these, there are probably eight or ten that are considered original melodies, but most of them are based on plain chant, um, existing melodies that were already there that he's adapting or just completely using uh, as they exist. Um, some of them are what they call Liza, and we're going to listen to one of those in a little while. Uh, those are uh, those have a little Kyrie eleison at the end. A Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, uh, at the end of at the end of each stanza. That was a form that was highly used in pilgrimages outside of the mass. So Luther Luther wrote some of his own stuff musically, but he also most of all was heavily reliant on the existing church music tradition and culture. Dr. Vicker, would you say that if Luther himself was not such a great musician or as capable musically, do you think he still would have had the same opinion mm-hmm. of the significance that music played in relation to the Word of God? I think he probably would have because Colossians 3.16 was animating him on this regard. But I do think the tools that he brought uh, to the table to make that kind of happen 
uh, were considerable. And, and if he hadn't had some of those musical tools, it might not have been so artfully done. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, he, he begins writing hymns around 1523. It's right after those monks were, um, monks in, uh, in Holland were, um, what's the word, uh, martyred for confessing the gospel. They were burned to the stake. So he writes his first hymn, A New Song Here Shall Be Begun. And uh, it's about the story of these monks and how they died for the faith. But after that, he begins to write hymns, and he's saying, I'm writing these as as an example. And within about two years, he writes about two-thirds of his hymn hymn corpus, you know, 20-some hymns, Mm -hmm. uh, within 18 months to make an example. And he's, here's how you might do a psalm. Here's how you might do this or that. And he's encouraging everybody else to do the same. And as a result, you know, musically and textually, he kind of launches this hymn explosion of the 15th of the 16th century, not just among Lutherans, but as the reformed also become, uh, kind of begin to take shape, uh, reformed begin to write hymns as well. Most almost entirely based on Psalm paraphrases. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's really something to see. On this note, I, I'm very eager to have you talk about, uh, especially Luther's catechetical hymns, as it relates, because I don't think it was by accident that right around this period of time, Luther is also hoping or wishing or wanting someone mm-hmm. to draw up a catechism, and then he seems to get tired of w- waiting around, and then mm-hmm. it sets sets off on the catechism, but then mm-hmm. there seems to be a merger here, maybe as he's uh, thinking about uh, the catechism, he's also thinking about uh, this hymnody, and so we happen to, we don't just so happen, we, we have these wonderful classic teaching tools in what we now call Luther's catechetical hymns. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we have some audio on uh, of some children singing uh, one of the catechetical hymns called uh, On the Ten Commandments, These Are the Holy Ten Commands. I'd like us to pause here and take a listen to a few verses uh, of children singing uh, from that Liza hymn, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. and then have you comment uh, comment on that. So we'll just take a listen here briefly.
And there you heard each, uh, each verse end with that, as you, as you sang earlier, Dr. Vieger, Lord have mercy. Uh, can you share some more about Luther's mindset in relation to maybe even, maybe three things? Uh, of course, teaching the faith through these catechetical hymns, but also I think you've got a place to talk about confessing the faith mm-hmm. and and really witnessing to others through this music and this confession or or outreach. So kind of three things seem to be happening in my mind here through Luther's catechetical, catechetical hymns. Could you comment on those things? Yeah, it's funny you should mention the catechetical hymns, which came first, you know, the chicken or the egg, because most of his catechetical hymns actually predate his his catechism project, which was, you know, 1528, 1529. And he began to formulate uh, how he was going to write the small catechism and the large catechism based on a series of sermons that he'd preached. So he, but before that, already five or six years before that, he had already written his Ten Commandments hymn, his creed hymn, uh, and he still had Lord's Prayer, um, Baptism, and the Lord's Supper uh, to come later. So he'd written almost half of his catechetical hymns before the small catechism project because he knew that basic things like um, the Ten Commandments and the Creed are have, have to be put to song in order to teach the children. Um, if you look at this Ten Commandments hymn, um, that would be in Lutheran Service Book 581. These are the Holy Ten Commands. He has this first stanza, which these are the Holy Ten Commands God gave to us by Moses' hands. This is the introduction to the hymn. That's followed by ten stanzas, one for each of the commandments, at least as Lutherans number the commandments. Uh, And then he has two concluding stanzas. Uh, And the final stanza concludes, Our works cannot salvation gain. They merit only endless pain. Forgive us, Lord. To Christ we flee who pleads for us endlessly, have mercy, Lord. So he concludes this Ten Commandments hymn, which is heavy-duty law, uh, with um, a gospel plea, uh, an explication of Christ, uh, who pleads for us endlessly, whose merits, um, who who merited for us salvation. Each of these uh, previous stanzas, uh, uh, one for each of the Ten Commandments, does a wonderful job of not just describing what the commandment prohibits, but also the positive side. What does the commandment say we should do positively? So, in other words, um, you shall not steal or take away what others worked for night and day. That's the negative. Don't steal. But open wide a generous hand and help the poor in the land. A positive. Well, he does that for each of these stanzas. And I think... Um, this, a good use of this hymn is most of the time not to sing all 12 stanzas, but more than likely to sing the introductory stanza. And then one of the commandment stanzas that you're going to focus on, perhaps in a brief homily or in a catechetical setting. And then the final two stanzas, 11, 12, that summarize and point us toward Christ as the one who has, in his act of obedience, kept all of these commandments in our behalf and empowers us through the gospel to uh, to do the positive things that they that they engender. These these hymn texts, I think, are so impacting um, 
it reminds me of kind of a refrain that we have at David's Harp. I present in different places to congregations or assemblies or mm-hmm. or uh, conferences or something like that. And I will talk about the need in our churches for a strategy more mm-hmm. than a song. And mm-hmm. uh, what I'm talking about there, usually I'm talking to organist or director of music or a pastor. And a lot of times when, as you know, when you're a pastor or a choir director, people raise their hand, pastor or director, uh, this is my favorite song. Can we sing that? <laughs> you know, and you constantly are working with folks who have a favorite song and there's absolutely everything right about, you know, having a favorite song or something like that. But uh, I try and help people understand that if we are to teach the faith, I mean, our our primary responsibility, of course, is to teach and confess the faith and Mm -hmm. proclaim the saving name of Jesus and so on and so forth. And, And pastors or cantors or those in leadership positions in the church, that's their primary responsibility is to make sure that we're uh, confessing the faith and passing it on and proclaiming it together and so on. And and sometimes an individual song may not do that. Um, mm-hmm. And and so more than just sort of finding a song that sort of works, we want to, through David's Heart, be inspiring the idea that we need a broader strategy that uses um, music as a vehicle for confessing the faith, teaching the faith, and reaching out uh, with God's word. And and it seems to me that these catechetical hymns, and as you explained, if you dig in to the actual texts of this music, it is doing those things. It Absolutely. is just literally pulling God's word out of the Bible and organizing it in a strategic way so that if someone, you know, has a little time to, to learn this and, and sing it, they would actually know what God's word uh, says (laughs) and they would actually know Christ. And it's not like, let's pass this time and enjoy a, a certain song. I mean, we can do that within our lives, but from the church, what seems to me uh, to be happening through Luther is that he is really strategizing and he really wants people to know the gospel. And this, in his mind, seems to be the best way that anyone in the world could know God's word is by very intentionally um, setting the teachings of scripture and the teachings of the word of Jesus uh, to music so that uh, even, you know, in his prayers in the catechism, at the end of the section on prayers, he says, all right, then, you know, now that we're done mm-hmm. praying, let's go to our work singing a hymn like right. that of the, like Ten, that Commandments. Of the Ten Commandments. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Inculcate these things, he said at the, in his preface to the, to the small catechism, years later after he had written this hymn already. Um that happens through not just the, the words, which he says, by the way, don't constantly be changing the words to the, to the text of the small catechism. Um, stick with one form. Uh, but also the, these, uh, the sung forms of these catechetical uh, pieces uh, teach it in a different way. Uh, I would argue, you know, this hymn, at least in kind of widespread Missouri Synod, uh, you know, core hymnody, is critically important. 
but it's not terribly well known. It's not a difficult melody uh, today. It was a well-known melody in Luther's day. That's why he picked it. Um, and it was, a, it was also already associated with the Ten Commandments, other Ten Commandment hymns. Uh, this melody is easy, to, is easy to learn. I taught it in my congregation. I always had a Sunday school opening every Sunday, and we used the first part of Matins uh, kind of to get started. And then we sang this. I did a series of, you know, I worked through the small catechism, and we sang this with all the Sunday school kids and the adults attending um, as part of our 10 to 15-minute Sunday school opening for about 10 weeks. And you know what? By the end of those 10 weeks, everybody there knew this melody. Yeah. And that was a good core of the people who were coming on Sunday, so then we could use it on Sunday. So yeah. there's the kind of strategy like that also, where it's not just like, well, this is a really awesome hymn, and it's got a great text, let's dig into it. Um, you have to be able to do, teach the melody in a sound pedagogical way that people will actually get it and embrace it. Right. And I saw this with the Creed hymn, for instance, the We All Believe in One True God, where my children went to school at Our Savior Heartland in, uh, in, in Michigan. A child of Christ in Heartland, and uh, you know my the fourth grade, the favorite hymn of the fourth grade, which they always were uh, lobbying Counter Gramzo to sing uh, in in class, was "We All Believe in One True God." They had learned that melody by heart, mm-hmm. and it, and it had substance and depth, and that's what the fourth graders wanted to sing. Yeah, yeah, super or fifth graders, I guess it was. Yeah. I think you find when uh, also with a with a sound strategy, um, you find that you know especially children uh, love mm-hmm. in part what they know, yeah. and you know if you're happy about teaching these uh, rich treasures uh, that that bring you know with them the mm-hmm. word of God bright and shining, um, you know. <laughs> Once we learn it, you know, it becomes our favorite. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. They, they, uh, they, they love what they know, and, and especially stuff that has substance. So that will stay with them. Yeah. You know, you talked, you're asking about confessing the faith in addition to teaching the faith. Um, this was, of course, kind of foundational to all, all that Luther did. And he, you know, he took his cue from the, the scriptures, uh, the New Testament word for confess, homologeo, means to basically say back, to say the same thing back to God that he says to us. So in the Ten Commandments hymn, he is speaking to us his law, that we are sinners and we, um, we merit nothing of our own. Uh, we are lost without Christ. And we say, amen, we are sinners. We, have, we uh, confess our sins. And then he speaks in his gospel, you are forgiven in Christ for all that Christ has done for you by his bloody sacrifice on Calvary, his act of obedience in keeping these commandments for you, his resurrection from the dead, and his promise of eternal life to you. Um, and we say, amen, gift received. In the absolution, and in the, in the uh, Lord's Supper, and in the preaching of the gospel. So, you know, another hymn that Luther wrote that, that really characterizes this confessing is uh, 556 in Lutheran service book, Dear Christians, One and All Rejoice. This was the second hymn that he wrote after he wrote the hymn about the martyrdom of the, of the, of the brothers in Brussels, uh, the two monks in Brussels. He wrote this hymn in the same style, and it's, uh, it was kind of the newspaper style of the day where you, you tell the story about something that happened, like the martyrdom of the two brothers, uh, in the form of a song. He said, let's tell the gospel. This is a great way to speak the salvation history. 
so the first four stanzas of Dear Christians get into how, how lost we are without Christ because of our sin and our, um, the death, our death and the devil. Then in fi- finally in stanza five out of the ten, he says, God said to his beloved son, it's time to have compassion and go, bright jewel of my crown, and bring to all salvation from sin and sorrow. Set them free, slay bitter death for them, that they may live with you forever. And it just gets better from there. Mm -hmm. So this is an example of confessing, of saying back to God what he said to us, confessing the faith before all the world on the wings of song. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, uh, by a hundred years later, a Jesuit uh, who uh, uh, was a Roman Catholic trying to steal Lutherans back to the Roman Catholic Church, he remarked, Martin Luther has destroyed more souls with his hymns than with all of his writings and preaching. <laughs> hmm. They could try to they could try to suppress, you know, Luther's sermons and his writings, but they could not quash out the hymns. These so hymns this, were on people's hearts. Yes. And 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 they they go with you wherever you go. Uh, yes, that's right. Um, you don't need to have a book. Reminds me of the sort of um scenario that is shared often at, at the Diet of Worms, is it, where they're, you know, inside they're hearing Lutherans or, or early Lutherans singing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. And, uh, the, and then there's this unitive quality, right, to right. joining together with one voice in this music, I think, that does something for us um, in that way that many things can't. Maybe we should uh, move to uh, another sort of aspect of all of this, moving forward in time and and considering what this foundation uh, of pairing music and God's word together uh, and really an amplification or a, a highlighting of the the Lutheran cantor and church musicians and people singing, what impact maybe uh, Luther's interest in music and and his uh, performance of music and integration into the church, um, what what impact that all had on um, on the globe or across the globe uh, after the Reformation period as we consider people like J.S. Bach? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, certainly, you know, from Luther to Bach, you know, Bach would be kind of the uh, apex of kind of Lutheran church music, where where things ended up flowing out of the Reformation and the uh, post-Reformation period into Leipzig, the high point, let's put it that way. Um, shortly after Bach and even during J.S. Bach's life, things had already begun to fall apart philosophically as the Enlightenment, uh, rationalism, and eventually deism in England and elsewhere uh, began to uh, uh, basically blow over the Lutheran Church and a heavy influence of the Reformed, as uh, as the as many Lutheran princes began to capitulate and themselves become Reformed, uh, that influenced how the Church was governed in the late 18th and 19th century. So they have this high point, and then everything went to hell in a handbasket uh, for quite some time, uh, and then it was recovered. Uh, to some degree with the rise of neo-confessionalism in the early 19th century with the likes of C.F.W. Walther in our tradition, Wilhelm Lehr, and a number of others in, uh, in, in Europe. 
But uh, just uh, that's giving the big picture, and we could take that into the 20th century also. But I'd like to talk a little bit. I'm, I'm relying here heavily on an essay that was done by Carl Schock of Blessed Memory, uh, a, a great Lutheran uh, cantor and teacher of the 20th century. Um, he wrote an essay a few years ago, Common Attributes of Early Lutheran Church Musicians Between Luther and Bach. And he speaks of men like Johann Walter, who was the first cantor of Lutheranism, the first kind of professional church musician of Lutheranism in Luther's day. He was Luther's kind of Fachmann or special, specialist in this area. Georg Rau, who was a composer, the first uh, cantor at the St. Thomas Church, where Bach ended up 150 years later. Hans Leo Hassler, Michael Praetorius, Johann Hermann Schein, Heinrich Schutz, the greatest Lutheran composer before Bach. And he, he highlights five kind of um, characteristics. First of all, he says, they were all highly trained in the art and craft of music. They were well-trained in their own day and knew their craft and knew their stuff. So they availed themselves of, of the resources of being well-trained. Number two, they were musicians who found the historic liturgy and the worship of God's people the most natural and appropriate context for most of their music. So they all lived and breathed the liturgy and the hymnody and the worship of their congregations, and that's where they wrote their music, almost all of their music for. Number three, they were, with few exceptions, also involved in the secular music life of their day. So they wrote music for the community, communities. Um, that was part of their duty most, in, mostly in those days. If you were called as cantor, you, had, you also did some of that kind of thing as well. But they were not like shut up uh, in a monastery or something, uh, scribe, scribe, scrawling away uh, new compositions. They were involved also in the community. Number four, they wrestled with the challenges and the opportunities presented by a new musical style. The Italian style was, was blowing over, the winds of an, the Italian style were blowing over all of these composers, well, certainly the ones in the uh, 17th century, and um, they incorporated portions of that musical style that were um, commensurate with what they were trying to do in their church music. And finally, and this is a key one, the, each of these church musicians were influential one way or another, as teachers, and not just you know teaching music to uh, their students, but also the catechism and Latin and all of these great things, but primarily the catechism. So they were teachers, and I think that's uh, that's how music impacted within the church. Now, if you want to get beyond that, um, you can get in. You know, at, part of the thing that happened in the Enlightenment was that all of the great music basically moved out of the church and into the concert hall. So you see that with the rise of the classical period, composers like Mozart and Beethoven, who was the bridge into the Romantic period. After that, you didn't go to church to hear great music so much. Uh, you went, all the, all the new music, the great music was happening in concert halls. It became secularized. And there was, of course, uh, still sacred music being produced. And you had some composers like Mendelssohn in the early 19th century and, and Beethoven also to some degree, but in particular Mendelssohn writing a significant amount of, of, uh, of church music. But um, So that's the overview. I mean, the, the impact, kind of how the Reformation and Luther, uh, Luther's emphasis on music, it impacted the Lutheran church tremendously. 
but then you have this kind of influence of, 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 of rationalism starting already in the late 18th century. And that, um, that kind of puts a kibosh on it, or let's say um, throws a lot of cold water on it, makes mm-hmm. it more difficult. What about comparing? Um, can we draw comparisons of, of the, the Lutheran Reformation, the, the use of music in the church, mm-hmm. um, as well as, you know, for example, in Bach's, Bach's day, um, how significant, for example, his cantatas were um, and the application, uh, the pre- even present-day application. I mean, mm-hmm. Bach, I remember Cantor uh, Resch, Richard Resch, as a professor at the seminary in a hymnology class teaching us that people – uh, people know Bach to be the fifth evangelist. Mm-hmm. Um, his work in the church, as you say, in the church, um, was so significant that it was it's it was and is now being proclaimed all over the world regularly by all kinds of people, whether they're in the church or not. Um, mm-hmm. Can we draw comparisons um, in relation to the use use of music? within the Lutheran church, maybe like then and now, uh, Mm -hmm. positive or negative? Well, you have to understand that Bach, like I say, was the watershed. He he wrote over 300 cantatas, and we only have a third of those extant. The rest of them have been lost. Uh, He had a whole plan for a six-year series of cantatas, and this means, you know, a 15 to 20 minutes of music that followed – uh, you know, uh, followed the preaching of the Holy Gospel in and around that. Uh, and then the sermon came after that, more or less. It's how we think it happened most of the time. And a variety of cantatas for other settings. But, I mean, this guy was incredibly prolific. And shortly as when he died, he died as an old, you know, kind of, yeah, that's old Bach, and that's his old style. Classic, The classical style was already happening the new composers like Haydn and Mozart were rising. They learned things from him, but they were into a different style and a different form. And, uh, you know, then and now, we'll never be, uh, I don't want to say never, but, you know, a, a J.S. Bach coming along like that in, the, in that kind of a situation, I don't know. Um, everything pales, in my opinion, compared to how it was in, in, in Leipzig in Bach's day. Now, are Bach's cantatas accessible today? Still, yes, absolutely. In very, um, uh, I'd say, uh, advanced situations where you have a parish that can that can pull that off. Um, now, there are other musicians who may disagree with me on that, but um, box music is not easy. <laughs> it it it, uh, it it's challenging in uh, for the singer. It's also challenging for for the musicians who who play it. It is the foundation, of course, so much of what we do. Um, I think it's important, more important to think about musical cultures. And by that, I mean that every period, um, every period of, of history, um, and we live in one of the most eclectic periods of of musical history, um, takes every church music assimilates styles from its surrounding, uh, musical cultures. You know, Bach did this as he assimilated the recitative, for instance, uh, in which was from Italian opera. And today we look at it and just said, it sounds like a Bach cantata. But in his day, that sounded to people like an opera from Italy, an Italian-style opera, and therefore not appropriate 
Uh, <laughs> does that sound familiar? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, uh, I think the best musicians in the Lutheran Church are like these other musicians that I highlighted. They are highly trained in the art and craft of music, and but they're also able to pull pieces from the surrounding musical cultures um, and from the history of, of music that has come in the past and assimilate them, use them, bring them in, and create something different than has come before. So it's not just a repristination um, of everything that's happened. Also, new music is being composed. Um, but it's a, it's, a, it's a, what's the word, um, a wise and um, a wise assimilation. They're not just pulling any old thing, whatever the latest style of pop music or whatever that comes along. Or, or in the case of long hair music, you know, atonal um, or avant-garde uh, weirdo stuff, that's probably not going to work in the church. They're, they're finding stuff that, hey, I think this, the way this is done over here might work well in singing the hymn, of, of, these are the Holy Ten Commands, a new way to sing it. Uh, so I think it happens best in a healthy way as as church musicians are well-trained and be, and and as composers, meet, uh, can look around them and see what, what's best uh, to bring in and make something new. Mm-hmm. Well, we and started. I know that's radical. <laughs> we started with a, with a conversation of Luther, kind of, you can almost picture him teaching a confirmation class. And these folks are not used to congregational music, uh, they're not, they haven't right. been involved in a time period, as you mentioned, culture, musical culture, that was really very uh, robust uh, and that they had a lot of familiarity with. Um, and so we began there and then we we kind of end up talking about Bach where, my goodness, it's a completely different period, completely different time, completely different Fully position developed. Yeah, as, as relates to music. And I'm, I'm kind of uh, feeling like as a pastor – because these podcasts, you know, what we want to be doing is sharing uh, with the whole church these mm-hmm. conversations. And I'm just becoming very practical now. Um, in order to pay the bills, you became a pastor <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, and a, a musician as well. And, and I'm a parish pastor, and I need to be listening to this and then say, okay, how does that apply to me? Mm-hmm. Like, yes, today's Thursday. Uh, yesterday we had confirmation class. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how then in our day and in our, contact, our context do we return again and again and again to our churches and consider uh, the role that music plays uh, for the sake of the gospel? Obviously, I guess today we have the benefit of, of having the history of Luther we have the benefit of Bach. We have the benefit of all of those musicians that you shared. Obviously, this different context and so on. So, so take us to the the local parish today, and what are some takeaways for our listeners uh, as mm-hmm. relates to the fundamental uh, question or the conversation that we began, kind of pairing music and the Word of God for the sake of the gospel today. Well, I think it boils down to an intentionality in teaching the melodies of our hymnody, and in some cases, liturgy, where it's unfamiliar, 
and figuring it out between pastor and church musicians how we're going to do it. What are we targeting in the year 2021? Are we going to, we're going to teach six new hymn melodies. How are we going to do that? Are we going to do it through the children? Are we going to do it through a hymn of the month program? But we are going to teach them because these hymns are um, accessible still. They're in our book, and they are critically important. I mean, if your congregation doesn't know the six, uh, doesn't know the melodies to the six catechetical hymns of LSB, that would be a great place to start. Uh, so hymns, um, teaching hymn melodies. I mean, it's not complicated uh, in in regard to you want to find a good way to do it, but you don't have to get you don't have to overthink it. But finding strategies for doing that, um, I, I think also it's important that pastors and musicians are planning together. I mean, so that what is happening in the front of the nave with the proclamation of the gospel from the from the pulpit in the readings in the Lord's Supper is is synced up with what's happening in the back of the nave as the uh, organists or choir directors or whatever are preparing their work as well. This kind of, uh, of, of stereo, uh, <laughs> stereo proclamation mm-hmm. of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And that only happens by being intentional about it and pastors and musicians working together. And that, that creates a whole other kind of dynamic. If a pastor and musician are not, don't have a good relationship or don't understand their work that way, what can they do to move in that direction? And then finally, I think it's critically important to begin to look to the next generation. You have young children, uh, you have teenagers, you have people who know, who who play an instrument, uh, and they're learning to play instruments. Uh, how can you bring them and use them, uh, and and give them an opportunity to serve within the divine service or for a Sunday school opening and all that sort of thing. And things like David Harp, David's Harp, with the academies that you're that you're uh, attempting to plan, and the resources, these wonderful um, piano graded piano resources, and all the other things I'm sure you have planned, these uh, in, are an investment to encourage and to nourish a love of the church's song and young musicians. And when it comes time for them to to uh, to go to college, to scholarship them, uh, to study for church music, or even if it's just to take organ lessons. They're going to major in biology, but they would like to learn how to play the organ. If we could just you know, increase the number of, <laughs> number of young people who have keyboard skills, and even if they can just play piano, that is an advancement of where we are right now. Dr. Veeker, I could talk to you all day long, but this... Uh... <laughs> Well, I could probably <laughs> this talk conversation <laughs> probably needs to come to an end. And uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed my time. And I'm sure our listeners uh, also have enjoyed their time uh, hearing from you and hearing this wonderful history that we have uh, as Lutherans that we earnestly desire to continue and to continue to amplify and and study and and proclaim and rejoice in. Uh, Again, Dr. Veeker, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Pastor, and it's been a blessing for me, and I hope a blessing for others. You have been listening to a David's Harp podcast. We thank you for joining us today. Learn more about David's Harp and how you can support its work at www.davidsharpmusic.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. 
teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. <laughs>